Thank you to Nigel for opening the door and to you for a bright welcome. The song is about the work of the Holy Spirit, and I want to take you there and think of what that might mean truly in our day by asking you to turn to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, as we'll consider the first 12 verses. With apologies, this from the ESV, I looked at your Bibles in the pew in the NIV, and I quickly said, at this stage of life, no way am I reading that print. (laughs) So uh, my larger print ESV, uh, I think you will find uh, many parallels. Acts 13, verses 1 and 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of, synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Heavenly Father, would you teach us by your word and spirit, applying what the spirit gave by the same spirit who yet opens hearts to receive. We would ask your blessing in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. More people worship Jesus in China than in the United States. Smaller percentage of the overall population, but so large a population that there are more people who worship Jesus in China than in the United States. There are more people who worship Jesus on the continent of Africa than in all of North America and Western Europe combined. 
Beginning of the last century, the fraction of persons naming the name of Jesus in Africa as a continent would be very, very small. Now, 50% of the population would identify as Christian. 500 million people identifying as Christian in Africa. There have been more Muslims converted in the last 15 years than in the last 15 centuries. The fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Underground, endangered, but for those who study it, spreading like wildfire. I mention the statistics to you not just to impress you with facts, but to cite what the American pastor evangelist Francis Chan is willing to say, and that is, we do no greater damage to the gospel than when we look at the book of Acts and we say it is ancient hyperbole of an extinct Holy Spirit who is no longer working today. Yes, different tasks, different times, different cultures, but the Holy Spirit is alive and well. More Christians, you know, were in Western Europe and the United States at the beginning of the last century, and now Christianity has moved to the global south, to Asia, to Latin America, to Africa, in astounding numbers and with amazing speed. The largest churches in London are African and Caribbean. In the state of the United States that brags about being big and having big things, Texas, the largest churches are usually Hispanic. In my denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the largest churches are Korean. The Spirit is alive and well. And it is almost cliche among Bible-believing evangelical churches that what we want to do in order to be in line with the mission of God is we want to identify what the Spirit is doing and get in step with the Spirit. To, to find out where that train is going and get on those tracks. To find where the wind of the Spirit is blowing and to set our sails in that wind. We all know the cliches. The, how do you do that? How do you identify where the Spirit is working and say, God, help us lift our sails to catch that wind that we might follow in your direction and do your work as you intend. The goal is simply to avoid the cynicism that says this is extinct Christianity, that says this is not realistic for our world, that we have no more hope in the Holy Spirit. The reality is the Scriptures themselves are not telling us about a Spirit who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but of a church that can be well used by the Spirit if we would discern the means by which we lift our sails to catch His wind. The means by which we do so are being described in words that go quickly beyond us in Acts 13. You have to remember where this all begins. The outline of the whole book of Acts comes in the very first chapter. As the risen Lord addresses his disciples before his ascension and says, 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And it's not a command. It's not even stated as a prophecy. It is a simple declaration. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, almost as though you could see David winding up his sling to slay Goliath, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the other... And we say, oh, well, that was then, and this is now. But there was a church formed, and what is happening is that Christians are committing to unity in humility that is the beginning of the catching of the wind of the Spirit. Part of that humility is just saying, Spirit, what are you doing? Help us at least recognize what is happening. Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in this ever-expanding flood of the gospel as the wind catches things. And then it happens, of course, in Jerusalem. There is the gathering of the nations of the Jews in pilgrimage who come for Pentecost and the Spirit in a renewed Sinai coming in wind and fire and word. And as the nations have gathered with different languages, they actually hear the word of God in their own languages despite being from the different cultures and lands. Every Jew hears in his own language who has come on pilgrimage to Pentecost. And thousands believe. And it's not the end of it. Because they were added to the church daily, such as believed. Until you get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, and you discover even the priests of the temple and the synagogues are beginning to believe. And it's at that point that the authorities say, enough of that. And so the persecutions start to stop the wind, which of course can't be stopped. They try. There is that moment, of course, in which a young man who's in charge of the Jewish troops holds the cloaks of those who stone Stephen, thinking, of course, that this will stop by persecution and fear, belief in Jesus Christ. But instead, Christianity becomes like seeds on the wind as the persecution drives people of faith to far lands. As they are going to distant places, things have to change, even among those who are believers. And what God does by his spirit is he first changes the heart of a monster. Acts 9. The very one who held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen, who is responsible for the imprisonment and the torture and the deaths of Christians, he is struck down on that road to Damascus. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And Saul became Paul, not only believing in Jesus, but commissioned to the Gentiles. But how could he go to the Gentiles? For even the the leader, the apostle's leader, does not want to minister to Gentiles. And so you get to Acts chapter 10. And God is not only changing the heart of a monster, he's changing the heart of a bigot. This same Peter, who wants nothing to do with those outside the covenant people, is taken to the house of a Roman centurion, and in a vision has God speak to him, don't you dare call unclean 
what I have declared clean. And Peter begins to open the door for Paul to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. The dispersion has moved the early Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, out of Jerusalem. And they, they end up in this, this land bridge between the Middle East and Africa and Asia that we call Asia Minor. And the dispersed Christians find one another. And they begin to gather in a place called Antioch in a church. And it's the first place they actually call themselves Christians. We are followers of Christ. We have fled from the Jews. But now we're together in this foreign place. And who are you? Well, I followed you. I followed you. I'm, I'm for the Christ. We're Christians. And it also becomes the first sending church. Not just to be driven by persecution, but gathering resources to send people to further the message under the leadership of those who have been forced together in this foreign city by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But they can't work together. They can't send anyone. They can't function as a church until they bow in humility, not just at the leading of the Holy Spirit, but at the leaders the Holy Spirit has put in charge of the church. We read so quickly that we hardly recognize the significance of verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Those are the leaders. Barnabas. Now there's a, a Jewish name. But we soon learn that Barnabas was raised in Cyprus in Greek culture. In the providence of the Holy Spirit. This first to be sent out with Paul to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, is a Jew who's been raised among the Greeks. He knows the culture. He knows the language. He knows how they work. He's lived in those neighborhoods. And later, when the report comes back that the Gentiles, the Greeks, are believing, it's actually Barnabas who makes the defense to say, it is good. It fits him. Because his name, Barnabas, you know, actually means son of consolation, encourager. And he is an encourager. He encourages Paul going with him. He encourages the church to welcome people unlike themselves. He's just an encourager. And that's a great thing on the first missionary journey. But then something happens. The gospel has to work, even in the life of Barnabas. You may remember on that first missionary journey when they go to Cyprus, we're actually told in this passage, there was a man named John who was helping them. Not John the Apostle. John Mark, cousin of Barnabas, who wanted to join the adventure. Did so on the first missionary journey. But it was tough ministering to those Gentiles. When the Jews hated you, and the Greeks would not receive you. And so John Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. And when they come back later and report to Antioch that there have been believers, Barnabas says, let's go again. And let's take John Mark. Paul says, no way. He abandoned us, we'll not take him again. And Barnabas, the encourager, and Paul have a falling out that does not heal for years but even there is the mark of the gospel at work. Ultimately, their hearts bend to the work of the Spirit and to each other. And that relationship is healed. But not only them. 
John Mark, the coward, the abandoner, himself gets used. After all, John Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark in your Bibles. Every time you open your Bible and you look at the four gospels, you recognize one of them is the one who abandoned the gospel at some point. And the Lord claimed him and renewed him and restored him and used him. And, and the gospel of Mark is in its very nature a trophy of the gospel. This is grace, forgiving and restoring and sanctifying. And look who wrote this. And we learn it all just by the name Barnabas, an encourager who was a Jew raised among the Greeks. Humility comes more when you recognize the next name on the list, Simeon, who is called Niger, which is just Greek for dark or black. We still use the word Nigeria, and it's appropriate. Simeon, who is called Niger. Almost everyone would say it's because of his skin color. He's in the church of a black man, a man apparently of African descent, because there had been a large group of Jews that had established a great culture of Jewry in North Africa. But for one of them to have darker skin than others, to be black, means at some point one of his forefathers intermarried in some way. And for a Jew... This would be uncleanness on display. And yet here is Simeon called Niger, the black man, who's in the church and is in leadership. Maybe even more important for you to know that that area of North Africa was known as Cyrene. And any number of commentators, including John Stott, had said, could this have been any other than Simon of Cyrene, the very one who, when Jesus was taking his cross to Calvary and by the flogging could no longer bear the weight of the cross, had a Roman soldier near him say to one Simon of Cyrene, you carry the cross of this condemned man. And Simon of Cyrene saw Jesus crucified, dead, and buried. And if this is the Simon of Cyrene, then he who was in Jerusalem has now himself believed in a risen Lord and the persecutions have driven him out of Jerusalem. And he is in Antioch, gathering in the church and gathering people saying, this same Jesus whom I saw crucified is risen and ascended and Lord and let's worship him. And we actually have less question about the next name on the list, Lucius of Cyrene. There is a Roman name from an African destination. He has two strikes against him. He is Roman, whatever his heritage or background. Roman oppressors are, of course, what have made life difficult, so difficult for the Jews of the era. And here's Lucius, Roman heritage with African background. And what almost gives you goosebumps if you begin to think of how the Holy Spirit is working and how the gospel is overcoming all barriers is to think that there seems to be this cadre of Africans in the very first church we know about with leaderships that was going into mission. That, that the first church to send missionaries 
itself had this core of African leaders who are responsible for thinking of what the church should do forever if it is to honor Christ. But if those antagonisms and prejudices are being overcome, you must know the greatest challenge is yet to come. Who else is on the list? Manaean, brought up with. That's the Greek term, and depending on the translation you have, it will be translated differently. Manaean, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Some of your Bibles will say a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Some of your Bibles will say foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Whatever it is, it's a close association with Herod. Now, you know that name. His father was Herod the Great, the one to whom the wise men came. Where is the one that is born, king of the Jews? Well, I don't know. Why don't you find him for me so I can go worship him, said Herod. But his intention, of course, was to kill any competitor for his throne. And when Jesus could not be identified by the wise men who had been warned by an angel to go the other direction, what did Herod the Great do? But killed all the infants of the area of Bethlehem. That was the father of this Herod. This Herod has blood on his hands too. Like his father, even though he is of Jewish heritage, he is a Roman vassal ruler. He cares very little for his people, his heritage, or their faith. And so he incestuously marries and comes under the preaching of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist condemns him for his marriage, it is this Herod, this very Herod, who beheads John the Baptist. And of course, that is not the end. Because there will come a time of Passover when the Jews again gather from the nations and there will be one that they hail, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And he will one time be arrested and taken to this Herod who will turn that one named Jesus over to Pilate and he will be crucified with the complicity of this Herod. And now Manaean, foster brother, good friend, brought up with, member of the court of Herod, the murderer, the betrayer, the traitor of Jesus and his people. This Manaean is in my church. You be a Jew. You be a Christian in the early church. I might receive a Jew who has been raised among Greeks. I might worship with a Jew who's got a dark skin color. I might worship with a Roman who's got an African heritage. But Manaean, Manaean, that is a bridge too far. Don't make me go over that hurdle. Don't make me get in a church with that man. But the Christians bow before the Spirit. And he is a leader in the church. Which would not even have been close to being as hard as receiving the last name on the list. Manaean, brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now just imagine. If you had been driven from home and country 
and livelihood, and you had seen family killed and imprisoned and tortured, and you escape it all to a foreign land, and you go to worship in a church, and one of the elders on the session is the very Nazi general in charge of the destruction of your family. Now, will you be in unity? Will you go back to that church? Will you worship in that church? Somehow they believe deeply there is none righteous, no, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is a a leveling of the gospel that Jesus had to die for my sin to forgive me that I am only before God righteous, robed in his righteousness. And that is not just true of me. That is true of my worst enemy who believes in the same Jesus, who has much right in the church as I. And so unity that comes out of deep humility before the working of the Holy Spirit is lifting our sail to the wind. Blow, Spirit, blow. We cannot be your church if we will not bow to the wind of the Spirit which can be very hard. How do they do it? We begin to find that they are finding direction in devotion. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now we get put off by the direct mention of the Spirit speaking. But if you would just for the moment put that aside and say, Where does the Holy Spirit enter the scene to make clear His will? What are they doing? They are worshiping. It's it's in that continuing present. They have been driven from their homelands. They are being forced to worship with their enemies. They, They have every reason not to be a part of this, to think God has abandoned them, to think that the Jesus who has ascended is somewhere absent, and yet they continue to worship. We, we sometimes say to young people who are trying to find direction for career or purpose for life, and we say, well, don't, don't just sit in your room and think about it. <laughs> you know, go out and find a job. Start making it. It's easiest to turn a car in motion. <laughs> you know, get in motion. <laughs> and you see that the, the motion of the Holy Spirit is worship. It's God's people in worship. Who are saying, we're we're not just going to sit aside and at some point hope we'll find direction. We gather together in unity, in humility before fellow sinners, because I'm a sinner too. And we worship together in the name of the one who has saved us all by his precious blood. And worshiping him, we begin to find devotion. And in that devotion, we begin to find in one another and in the working of the Spirit among us what our strengths and gifts and abilities are. And we are called into the worship that God calls us to. It it begins with that consistent devotion. While they were worshiping the Lord, we're troubled, of course, because that worship is not just formula or ritual. It's genuine gospel dependence. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Verse 
3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Just recently, uh, last week, in our church, we sent off a young couple to establish a new church. And we probably did what, what you will do. We, we gather elders around and we pray for them and we lay our hands on them and we commission them to the work of the Lord. And how do I say, it's, it's not hard to do. You rejoice to do it. We, we know we're supposed to pray about such things. We kind of surround them with a holy aura, you know, and, and we lay hands on them and we send them off. And, and whether you're not participating, you kind of watch it done and others can take care of it for you. They can pray and they can lay hands on and they can send. But the church is fasting and other people can't do that for you. And, you know, we read a word like fasting, and if you're like me, I, well, well there, were, there were some ancient fanatics in the church, you know, and, and they fasted. And, but the other difficulty, of course, is we hardly even know the experience anymore. Now, I don't know what you all teach, but when, you know, when I was, you know, being raised in the church, and we would occasionally have fasting for particular efforts or energies of the church or a particular mission, always the explanation was the reason you fast is so that you can focus on the things of the Lord. But that's not what I focused on when I was hungry. (laughs) You know, what I focus on is, I'm hungry. (laughs) And it's actually hard for me to focus on the things of the Lord because I'm hungry. But what if we actually viewed it differently? What if we recognized that what prayer is at its core is the confession of our inability to do God's work apart from God. Why am I praying? I'm praying because I'm saying, God, I'm at the end of my resources. I need you. That's why I'm praying. I can't take care of this. The couple that we're sending off, they can't do what's needed, but you can. We're asking for you to work, and it is automatically the confession of the inadequacy of our resources. Why do we fast? What if you were not just saying it's, you know, it's some form of yoga that's going to make you kind of focus on something? What if you actually believe that your hunger was worship? That, that what you are saying is, I'm acknowledging by this physical act, even as prayer is that spiritual act, I'm acknowledging not in my strength, not by my ability. When I am weak, then I am strong. Not because I have filled up with my resources, that, that this is an aspect of worship, that my hunger, my lack of nourishment is saying, we're not going to do God's work by our strength, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And fasting is just, in its essence, part of our saying to the Lord, we need you, and I confess to you, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. My weakness is the confession of my need of you. When I am weak, then I am strong. And in my hunger, I'm just saying, not because I'm strong, not because I have nutrients and nourishment. I'm depending on you. You know, lots of us, because of the song, know the words, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Do you know where it comes from, Zechariah? And you might be interested to know the full context. This is the word of the Lord to the leader of God's people. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before this man of God, you shall become a level plain. And he shall come forward from your heights amid shouts of grace, grace, grace to it. 
Not you, not your strength, not your resources. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. As we say, not my righteousness, not my spiritual resolve, not my physical strength, but the grace of God alone is going to accomplish the work of the Spirit. This is people in deep humility, not only identifying what's the Spirit doing, not only receiving the leadership that the Spirit is providing, but confessing by prayer and fasting and worship. It is only by the grace of God that we will accomplish anything for the purposes of God. We lift our sails to the wind. Blow, Spirit, blow. Not by my strength, not by my might, not by my power, not by my devotion, not by us. But we confess our absolute need of your grace to make this happen. We are dependent entirely on you. And it's only at that point that the Spirit enters the scene and says, Now set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. As though the workers and the work don't get identified before the people are in absolute humility before God. And what does that look like? It looks like the courage to carry the message wherever it must go, regardless of the price, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the people, that one will proclaim the gospel with courage. Verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, that is Paul and Barnabas, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now again, I just read it fast. But, but did you read? Paul and Barnabas. And the first place they go is from Salamis to where? Cyprus. Whose home is that? That's Barnabas' home. And then they go and proclaim in the synagogues of the Jews. Which means that Paul and Barnabas, who are the first ones they talk to? Family. Who do we most hate talking to about our faith? (laughs) The people who know us. Our sin, our weakness, our frailty, (laughs) what we did when we were in school. (laughs) What our children do while they're in school. The problems in our marriages. The problems with our in-laws. My failures at work. My career challenges. The words that come out of my mouth that I wish never did. The hatred that's still in my heart as much as I try to forgive. My family knows I would talk to anybody but my family. But they talk to their family. That's first. As though they are saying, the very ones who will say to you, you hypocrite. So that you are forced to say, first of all, you know what? You're right. I am a sinner saved by grace. Apart from him, apart from his work in my life, I would have no standing before God, no right to say anything to you. Only by his cleansing blood, only by his grace do I have any ability. But you know what he's done? You know all those things you know about my weakness and my frailties and how how much I... You know all those things? He knows them too. And he loved me. Gave himself for me. While, While I was a sinner, while I was his enemy, Christ died for me. And he died for people like you too. That's why I tell you, my dear one, 
you know I don't deserve his grace. But I have it. That's why I tell you. To whom else do they speak? They address opposition. This strange story of Elimus the magician who opposes them, knowing that if people actually believe in Christ, he will lose his income from his benefactor who kind of watches over him to get the magic done for the royal household. So Elimus opposes, and at some point with courage, Paul and Barnabas say the words you would like to say to some people, you son of a devil! (laughs) But it's for Christ's purposes. But what it means is, while they are willing to speak the gospel to opposition, they will not be silent in the face of opposition. Speak to anyone that needs. Not count the cost. Pay any price for what is needed. We undoubtedly face spiritual opposition in our time. We are cultures either side of the Atlantic where the culture's conclusion at this time is that gender is fluid, that same-sex relationships are to be celebrated, that marriage is optional for sexual intimacy, that divorce is inevitable, that life begins and ends when it is convenient, that political animosity is perfectly acceptable. As long as they did it to you, you can do it to them. That pornography that uses others is just fine if no one finds you out. And it remains a challenge to pay the price and speak to opposition with courage and to lift your sails to the Holy Spirit and say, blow, Spirit, blow. We will go where you say and say what you will. And that is how we expect to see you work. It's not safe. It is the work of the Spirit and not of our strength, and not of our wisdom, not of our resources. It is yielding to the Spirit and saying, blow, Spirit, blow. Which ultimately means it's a willingness to speak to power. The 12th verse that we read with some celebration has in it an important principle. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, not at the miracle, at the teaching of the Lord. They speak truth to power, knowing the consequences are sure to come. Jesus told us they would come. If any man would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. There's a cross. Want the Spirit to work. We take up our cross and say, where do you want me to go, Holy Spirit? To whom do you want me to speak? And I will speak truth even to power, even what would seem to make no difference at all. I will say what you want me to say. Might there be suffering? There might very well be suffering. I think of the words of Walter Chantry, who nonetheless says, the only lasting and satisfying joys lie on the other side of the cross. Protect yourself. Don't get in trouble. They might say something. They might get angry. They might laugh. I might have to sacrifice some aspect of career or degree or friendship. 
Yes, yes, yes. But the only satisfying and lasting joys are on the other side of the cross. Where one says, for my Savior, who gave himself for me, I now live. And know ultimately my eternity is secure, not because of what I do or fail to do, but because of what he has provided. What, what would it mean? Where would you then see the Spirit work? Not, not for any other reason, just to tell you that the Spirit is alive and well, and the necessity of speaking to family and opposition and power is still here. I read you an email that I got last Saturday night. Traveling already? But um, an email from friends in China. Dr. Chapel, as you know, the Wuhan pneumonia is widespreading in China, causing tens of thousands to now be under treatment. In Hong Kong, public activities are suspended. Schools are closed. Church meetings are suspended. And some of you know the government has used the epidemic in part to help shut down more churches than it ever did before. Then these words. Dr. Chapel, as the speaker at this year's Hong Kong Bible Conference, we would ask you to write a short message to the saints here that we could be comforted and strengthened and encouraged. There will be a quarter million people gather at that conference. And I must tell you, I looked at this and I just began to feel afraid. Not, not of the numbers, but who am I to write to these people who have stood with courage, who, who see the Spirit moving among them, and the persecutions have only made them stronger? Who am I so comfortable in career in America? And who am I to try to encourage these people? I feel I have no right to do so. All I knew to do is to try to give them the words of the Scriptures. Dear my brothers and sisters in Christ, I wrote, as I read of the challenges you face in China, tens of thousands of patients under treatment for pneumonia, public activities suspended, schools closed, church meetings suspended, and leaders without freedom to proclaim the hope of the gospel. I write to tell you, the eyes of the worldwide church are upon you. The eyes of the angels are upon you. And most of all, the eyes of King Jesus are upon you. Around the world, believers are praying for you with strong confidence that the eternal purposes of God never falter. Your courage, your faith inspire fellow Christians around the world with prayers to the Holy Spirit that the church will be strengthened by the Holy Father in your behalf. Even when we do not know how to pray, We know the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with groanings too deep to utter according to the will of God so that all things will be worked together for good. These temporary afflictions are working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So while we wait for the things of God to be fully revealed, 
for the good of his saints and the glory of his son. I and my church will pray for you with the words of the Apostle Paul. We remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, and his Holy Spirit is with you. And so we lift our sails and say, blow, spirit, blow. We do not know how. We do not know your work. But we believe you are here and present and powerful. So humble us to do your work in the unity that truly causes us humility to live out. In devotion that truly gives us direction for what you want in gospel dependence that makes us turn away from our resources and our protections and depend upon you entirely. And finally, make us willing to pay any price, to go anywhere, to speak to anyone, believing that you will speak when we do. Blow, Spirit, blow. We trust you. In the name of Jesus, amen.